Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series entitled The Future of Super, an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, agitators, and stakeholders in policy, regulation, and from within the industry. At a time when the superannuation system is being asked important questions about its purpose, efficiency, and ability to deliver appropriate member outcomes. We will be exploring topics vital to those responsible for governance, operations, and investment outcomes of funds through this series of conversational style interviews. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. This episode of The Future of Super will aim to take a bit of a macro lens to superannuation and some of its key policy and economic considerations starting with a conversation about the purpose of super and then getting into a bit of a discussion in light of current economic and social factors. I'm Matthew Smith and I'm Managing Editor at Investment Magazine. Today I'm joined by Brendan Coates, Economic and Policy Program Director at the Grattan Institute and Julia Fox, a board member for industry fund REST Super and the National Assistant Secretary of the SDA, the Union for Workers in Retail, Fast Food and Warehousing. Good afternoon, both. Good afternoon, Matt. Nice to be here. Yeah, look, great to have you both here. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, 30 years since its inception, uh, superannuation, thereabouts, is it possible to say whether superannuation has fulfilled its original purpose? Um, Brendan, I might start with you. Yeah, so it depends. Superannuation has had a number of different purposes in its um, uh, in its stated objectives at different points in time, or it's implic- implicitly had a number of different purposes. So, the purpose of super has been contested at times. The way that we certainly think about it is, you know, the objective of superannuation is it's to help you save for retirement because you know people left to their own diverse devices probably won't save enough. They you know they don't think about enough about the future, so they're they're not forward-looking and therefore if you leave them to their own devices, they won't save enough. So it's overcoming those behavioural biases. And on the whole, if you give it that objective, the system tends to be working pretty well. You know, Australians' retirement savings and their retirement incomes are higher than they would have been. Mm. Um, uh, There's a question about what level you set compulsory superannuation at and we think it's roughly at the right level. Um, But there are other things about the system that probably also do need to change. So the costs in the system are much higher than we probably would have liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think they reflect a, a mistake that was frankly made when superannuation was set up, which was, you know, if you sip, stop and think about it, superannuation, it's about something 40 years into the future they're explicitly not expected to have thought about. That's why we have compulsory super. Um, it's uh, people don't, uh, don't have a great understanding of finance at the best of times. Um, the main mo- emotion associated with superannuation is fear or sorry, with retirement is fear. Um, and then you sort of put that together, but we expect people to individually have gone and chosen a superannuation fund and act, made those active choices. And I think it's no surprise that in that context, while super's delivering pretty good retirement incomes, the costs have been too high because, you know, people don't make those choices in practice. Uh, and then you end up with multiple accounts, you end up with fees being too high, all that sort of stuff. And we're slowly fixing those problems over time 
it's getting better. It still had a while to go. So I think it's both achieved its core purpose, but there's certainly a lot. Um, we've been doing a lot of renovations to it along the way. Yeah, and and some of the policy initiatives that have come through recently, obviously, the Your Future, Your Super, d- does that solve some of the issues? And when you say there's still some work to do, w- will that policy do some of that lifting or do you think that more policy initiatives are, are needed? Uh, we think it'll go some way to fixing the problem. So the Your Future, Your Super, particularly the underperformance test and stapling people to one superannuation fund will help reduce the proliferation of multiple accounts. Um, they'll fix some of those problems where people are left in poorly performing funds for a long period of time, but they probably don't go far enough in in, in improving performance. So we were we're a big fan of the Productivity Commission recommendation to establish a best in show top ten list of superannuation okay. funds. We think that would be a really big step forward. I should also say the other part of the system that has probably gone a little bit awry is you know the the way that we tax superannuation has probably become too generous. Well, I think it's clearly become too generous. Yeah. Um, yep. And, and that's something else that we have to fix over time. Yeah, we, we've already covered quite a lot in, in in the opening minute or two. So looking forward to delving into a couple of those areas. Yeah, Julia, really interested in your view just at that top line on the purpose of super and whether it's achieved what, what it had set out to do. Well, look, I think the Retirement Income Review found that it's a system that's effective, it's sound, it's broadly sustainable. Um, I probably differ from Brendan on a number of different purposes. Um, the comment he made just earlier, uh, because I really think the purpose of super is pretty clear, and it and it um, has been, you know, prior to the on to the nineteen eighties, superannuation was largely reserved for public servants and those working in the sort of multinational firms, and it was something that wasn't afforded to everyone. And low income workers, particularly, uh, were relying on the pension. And so, planning for retirement, um, you know, when people say people aren't able to save enough. I think the whole purpose is they're low-income earners and they haven't got that disposable income to add, you know, to, to savings accounts. So there had to be a better way to make it sustainable for people to retire um, comfortably and with dignity. So I think that's the purpose of super. It's for low and middle-income Australians to be able to have a decent retirement life. And I think um, the system is definitely not at full maturity yet. Um, it's been 30 years, but we've still got a way to go. I think the system, um, while broadly has, you know, lots of good areas, I think for women in particular, it's um, a problem in some of the structural settings that we have. We don't have super on every dollar. We don't have super paid to every worker. We need to get the basics right about um, removing the cap or the 450, making sure super is paid on parental leave, both paid parental leave and unpaid parental leave. So there's, you know, there's issues there that we can still improve on, um, but I think the purpose and foundation uh, really, since its inception, it's a, it's a it's an important purpose that it's there to support low and middle income earners in their retirement years. Brendan, you know, off the bat, did you do you agree with that? Oh, I think it, it comes down to you know who is paying for superannuation. So, so first of all, superannuation is part of a retirement income system. So, the super is not in my in our view, in my view, about trying to solve every problem in retirement income policy. You know, the pension is there to help. Um, ensure that people have a minimum living standard in retirement to make sure they're not in poverty. Uh, It does that reasonably well for homeowners. It does not do that well at all for renters because the rate of the pension there is too low. But if you think about superannuation, you know, I would push back on the idea that it's it's there principally for low and middle income earners. Those people in that situation, one, they're going to rely fairly heavily on the pension. The role of superannuation is to supplement their income. It's not going to replace the pension for that cohort. Um, and it comes down to who's paying for superannuation. In the case of, you know, we think across the board, 
you know, the history of superannuation since it was set up under um, under Bill Kelty and Paul Keating, compulsory superannuation, I should say, and that's sort of the, how well I think about where the super system really started being a national policy in a broad universal system or close to a universal system, uh, is, you know, it was designed to forestall wage rises. We've seen over the last 30 years superannuation tends to come at the cost of wages growth. So you're getting people to defer their wages until retirement to supplement their income on top of whatever they're getting in a pension. And so I wouldn't subscribe the main purpose of super as being about helping low-income people in particular. I think the pension is definitely the number one thing that is helping that cohort and we should not shy away from that. What super does is to top up people's retirement savings but at the expense of lower wages largely while they're working. Yeah, I, I just don't agree with that at all. Um, it is there to supplement, and I understand the you know the point Brendan's making on supplementing income. It wasn't there to replace the pension. It's there to supplement the pension, particularly for low income earners who um, don't have other saving mechanisms available. Home ownership again, another pillar that is uh, completely out of um, the affordability range of low income earners as well. So, I agree with um, the issues around particularly renting and and the growth we've seen in rental um, and lack of home ownership for people when they come into retirement. That is that is an issue when people retiring with a lot more debt than they used to. So that's a factor. But I think the fear of, you know, um, living off the age pension, I wouldn't want to be living off the age pension. Um, I think many people, we've had many uh, groups complain about the, the cuts, uh, the, you know, the not keeping up with um, the cost of living and community standards. So I think uh, when it comes to, again, the point about offsetting wages, I mean, I find this one an interesting, <laughs> an interesting mm-hmm. one. Um, considering that, you know, we've had a wage freeze since 2000, sorry, a superannuation freeze since 2014. Um, and since that time, we've had pretty much wage stagnation. Like, so to me, the correlation between increased SG and decreasing, you know, their sort of... Um, one goes up, the other goes down. That's just not the reality. Look at the last eight years. And in 18, the last 18 years, there's been two SG increases and we haven't seen that with wage growth. Um, so I, th- I think the proof's of the pudding. The wage growth isn't there. Um, and so I don't see the direct correlation at all. Um, and, you know, it's not my experience when I've been negotiating enterprise agreements either. So I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a falsehood, that one in my mind. Oh, look, I think it depends. If you look at... So why do we think that superannuation comes from wages? Well, that is certainly what the empirical evidence says. That's the, the, oh, the result of Grattan's that. work. That's it's the result of, no, you know, that, that which was not taken very seriously, frankly, by the Treasury's Retirement Income Review because the work wasn't very good. Um, so if you look at Grattan... So just go back to the last Treasury, eight years, though. Let's just look at 2014 onwards. Yep. So since 2014 onwards, you've got lots of... Th- so before we get to that... You know, you've got Grattan, you've got the Retirement Income Review, so which is Treasury's own work. You've got the Reserve Bank of Australia. You know, these are, setting Grattan aside, the economic institutions that have the expertise to best judge what's going on. And when they've done the independent analysis, we're finding that superannuation has historically come from wages. Um, now, you look at the last eight years, if you think about what superannuation, what, what superannuation is, superannuation is not a guarantee that your wage goes up or your total remuneration goes up. What it is is an increase in your payments into your superannuation account and it says nothing to the employer about what's going to happen to the other side of the ledger, what's going to happen to their wages. And historically, we've certainly seen that when super they put more money into superannuation, they put less into your wages. That's been what we've wait, seen wait, over wait, the last where? 20 years, uh, the last 30 years. The last including 30 years we've had in, in 18 years two SG increases of 0.5. 
So tell me how that is actually bearing out in the numbers about wage growth. They are consistent with our numbers. They include that period of study. In fact, in the more recent period, some of our work shows that the trade-off between superannuation and wages for those particular increases is, in fact, higher. You know, we've got to think about wages. limited to enterprise agreements, of which 45% of the workforce is only covered by them. The ANU research that was done by the Retirement Income Review is not based on that. It is based on, on basically using the taxation statistics to see what happens to wages. You know, there is not good evidence on the other yeah. side of the debate to say that, that doesn't come from wages. Uh, well, and the mechanism we're the talking about the proof's in the pudding, and if you ask workers whether they've had their SG go up and their wages go up. Hey, uh, uh, let's, I mean, the, the SG debate is is super interesting and, and obviously the Retirement Income Review leaned on, you know, a lot of the work from Grattan Institute and has and, and some of those um, issues are being commented on significantly and I, I think we'll, we're obviously going to hear a lot more about about that, you know, into next year as some of the Retirement Income Review findings begin to to land further. The, the SG debate, I want to continue on this path, but before we do, it must be difficult for policymakers to create the right policy if there is still a little bit of confusion around the purpose of superannuation. What can the industry do and what can think tanks like Grattan and, 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 and organisations and, and the superannuation industry do to help policymakers better understand what the purpose of superannuation is? Yeah, for the sector itself, the number one thing is to not equate superannuation with retirement incomes because they are clearly not the same thing. And we see this a lot in submissions that are going to things like the Retirement Income Review. They were alter- they were overwhelmingly focused on superannuation. Yep. There were relatively few calls to fix other parts of the system, whether it be raising rent assistance and fixing the social safety net, which is actually where Grattan thinks that most of the problems are in the system. And I doubt that there are areas where I doubt Julia would probably disagree, whether it be the rate of rent assistance, yeah. whether it be Absolutely. the disability support yep. pension and all these things. And if you're talking to the industry, and obviously the industry is a big listener to this podcast, Matt, like that is something that the industry does not do enough to do. Mm. You know, I have been involved in an enormous number of consultations with super, the superannuation industry and government and overwhelmingly it all comes straight back to, oh, when are we going to get SIPAs in place? When are we going to fix these other parts of the super system? So if you even think of um, fixing, um, ensuring that women are not in poverty in retirement, 450 a month, you know, good policy change, particularly now that we've fixed duplicate accounts. Paying parental leave on super, yes, it will help. Uh, but it won't help that much. We should still do it because it's a good principal thing to do. The well, thing that will make the biggest paid difference... Paid or unpaid. It's got to be paid and unpaid. And I think... That would make a big difference. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have employees in retail who already do that. So um, really the world's moved on and I think we really have to make sure people are paying super on um, parental leave. So I think a lot of the time that, you know, and I think the income um, retirement view was pretty disappointing in regards to, I think, the gender... Um, equity issues. I don't think it really, uh, I think it was a little bit dismissive ultimately about um, the impact of changes that are needed to kind of the structural changes that are needed to make it better for women in in terms of the superannuation space. Um, and superannuation on parental leave was one of them. And I think it, we, from our experience, it makes a huge difference to people if they get superannuation on their paid parental leave, government funded, employer funded, and also on the unpaid parental leave. I mean, that's where the gaps in women's um, earning capacity are when they're off um, on caring, you know, responsibilities. So I think we really do need to address some of those gender issues. The other one I would add would certainly would be, you know, if you look at those pe- that women who are in, in poverty and retirement, just as we look yep. at men who are in poverty and retirement, they're overwhelmingly renters. You know, Absolutely. fixing yep. the income support system, and fixing rent assistance is just something that we do not see very much in the public discussion uh, coming from the industry. 
You know, it's something that's going to affect your members enormously. You know, the thing that I'm most worried about, and I'm less worried about retirement incomes than some people because, you know, we have our stance on the, the rate of compulsory super itself. But the area that we're really worried about is unaffordable housing and mm. what's going to happen in 30 years' time when falling rates, the people who can't buy a house now start to retire. If we have the current systems in place, that's going to mm. be catastrophic for retirement. Superannuation probably won't help that very much, um, which is something we can talk about. Mm. But the that that issue just gets very little coverage from the sector. You know, I hear almost nothing from it. Uh, and if that if they're acting on behalf of their members, for those that are listening, that is an area where the industry needs to step up and push for change. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. The, the conversation, well, um, you know, at a policy from policymakers seems to gravitate towards, you know, the housing discussion and um, and you've just, you know, been talking a little bit about the affordability of housing, you know, should superannuation play a role in housing affordability? Uh, I think it depends well, think, what you mean, but go yeah. to it, sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say if it's um, the argument that you raid your super to get a deposit on a house, mm. um, you know, that that is not going to help housing affordability. Um, it was interesting, you know, doing some, talking to some younger members of um, our union and working in retail and fast food who just scoffed at the idea about accessing the super when they've got a balance of $3,000. How mm. is that going to help? A one million dollar property, or the average, you know, property in Sydney, for example, that's that's just ridiculous. And then it has such an impact in their long term sort of retirement outcomes. So, I think housing affordability, I, I completely agree, is a huge issue. And you know, I just look at the submission that Rest made to um, the Retirement Income Review, and we noted the importance of housing and particularly the debt that is people are retiring with. Uh, we also noted the importance of increasing the value of the age pension. So I think it's right. We have to be thinking uh, broadly. Super is is one sort of arm of, um, mm. you know, the problem. And and renting as well, again, you know, it's an often quoted stat, but women age 55 plus are the fastest growing group of homelessness. Yeah. Um, and, and rental affordability, stability um, of rent as well. You know, the SDA has done a, a report on called the Rental Nation and that just goes through some of the issues um, that we sort of partnered with Mikel on that to just look at really housing affordability for people It's um, and, yeah. and rental stability. So there's a number of factors that you need to consider and even you know, issues like family violence and, and how you come out with affordable, stable housing for people. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd still like to keep my question broad but ask it perhaps in a different way. I mean, what role can superannuation play in the housing affordability? Well, we've discussed super for how, using your super for housing. I tend to not support the policy. I acknowledge, look, I'm, I'll admit I'm someone that when I left my previous employee with the World Bank, I took my super and I bought a house. Um, and the difference is I was the only person that did it. And in that situation, it's fantastic. But in the situation where everyone's doing it, then it's going to raise prices, which is the issue that Julie is alluding yeah. to. You know, obviously, because prices are where they are and there's lots of reason we should bring prices down and all the rest of it. Mm. Uh, but anything you do to fix that deposit hurdle at the moment raises prices. Like the, the part, the, the group I would allow access to super if I was to allow anyone, and I've said this on the record before, um, is, you know, people who are low income and over the age of 40. Like, because if you haven't gotten to a house by then, then, and B, you think you can get one with your super, I think that's a worthwhile trade-off that's worth making. 
because it will not ignite the property market. It's a small sector share of the total market. I think that policy, which is one I think I would support if it was narrowly defined, is yeah. you know would be like lighting a match under a bonfire again um, mm. with the industry, just because I think there are really strong sort of defensive. It's very defensive in respect to the industry is very careful and very defensive of preservation. And Paul Keating, as you know, is very defensive of that too. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yep. And you know, you can't have a nuanced conversation um, in the way you should. But I think broadly, like the industry should just be pushing much more not for things where the industry can help. Like I think it's an underappreciated part of public policy is the industry groups who are representing their members in the same way that unions represent their members, right, pushing for policy change that isn't just about the industry itself. You know, if the, if the, if That's super right. funds That's absolutely right. yep. are pushing really, are pushing hard. Yep. So what are the, I mean, what are the some of the big things that the super industry could do to help it? I think a lot of them are about fixing the problems in the income support system. It's about acknowledging that the other parts of the system exist and say, if you want to avoid your members being in poverty, lift the rate of rent assistance. If you want to avoid your members struggling before retirement, advocate for Newstart, advocate for DSP reform. Because the problem is the, like, you know, we've all, if if you've done sort of public policy and you've done lobbying, you get one or two things that you get to put at your top of your wish list. And if those things are, changing the 450 a month threshold for super, it's going to have a lot smaller impact. It might be a win and a strategic that you choose. That's the number one thing you want to push for. But it's going to have a smaller impact than if you've got to change those other changes up. Mm. So you're um, kind of saying that this super industry is way too fixated on preservation. It's, 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 it's a advocacy hammer. opportunities. Yeah. There's advocacy opportunities that they could leverage better. Mm. They have a platform, they have an opportunity, but they don't leverage them well, I think, in terms of, what other factors? And, you know, that's why I was pointing to the rest one, but we were talking about definitely increasing the age pension and all those important things as well that come with the whole system of support for people in their working lives, in their retirement lives. Yeah, we actually did some analysis of the various submissions to the review and what was just... Time on your hand, Brennan. Uh, well, well, I've got good data staff, so yeah. that it's, yeah, we're not good. doing it by hand. Uh, and basically what it showed is that, the you know, the industry is just overwhelmingly focused on... Uh, on uh, aspects of superannuation and you uh, you know where there's there was you know twice as many mentions of super as the age pension you know there was very little mentions of rent assistance or how or, or aged care even though these are incredibly important issues like the average person's going to rely more on the pension or super even potentially going forward even with the the, the increases in super you know, the, the 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 super system itself is just not that big a part of. It's not. It's it's a very big part, but it's not the whole story. And I've seen it see actually since the reviews come out. Like I would, there was a, a Coda Retirement Income Forum in Canberra, which the treasurer spoke at, and most of the focus was on, you know, uh, getting sippers to help withdraw efficient drawdown of retirement income products. Even though I'm not even sure that's the main reason people don't draw down is longevity risk, um, and then very little on housing or any of these other things, they were just, they were left to the wayside as far as the industry goes. And like, I didn't realise Julia at Rest had written that submission, so that's great. Um, I'll yep. actually, we'll go and check it out. Um, but, you know, I was using, you know, what you get from uh, a lot of the super bodies um, and super industry groups. They just do not focus on the rest of this system. I have to ask, you know, as a follow-up, Brendan, how, how do you, man- how, do, how can you get money out of superannuation to, to put into a house? Oh, I work for the World Bank, and so when you leave, they don't have a pension fund, so they oh. give you the money back. So, okay. no, I was not breaking any rules in doing this. It's just the nature of that employer. 
Yeah, very good. And, <laughs> you know, I think it relates. I mean, what was the experience from the early release scheme, Julia? I mean, you must have a really good see-through. At Investment Magazine, we interviewed Vicky Doyle recently and we spoke a little bit about the impact of early release on members. What did we learn from this, the early release scheme and kind of any, any positive connotations um, relating to policy of that nature? Yeah, look, I think um, the impact of TERS, uh, sorry, early release was super, um, you know, to me was the very first policy response the government had to the pandemic. Um, and I think when people look back on that, um, that was a pretty interesting choice of policy was for people to fund their own pandemic um, crisis. And I think that that was just, I didn't agree with the policy at all. And I think um, the impact on women particularly, who I think men have um, accessed more super, but women have actually wiped out their accounts um, more so than men. Hmm. So completely wiping out your super account to pay down your mortgage, to pay down debts, because as it was, you know, it's we've been in pandemic now for a while, but when you think back, it was a pretty scary time and people were really, really concerned about whether they had a job in the future, what that might look like. Um, so people did, you know, pay down debts, for example. But super isn't a bank account, and I think that's kind of the main problem we see with this type of policy response. Um, it really wasn't well thought out. Brendan? Look, I do have a bit of a different view. There's a couple of points where we do agree. Let me start with those, Julia, which is uh, they clearly underestimate, the government underestimated the size of the problem at the start, and this was the first policy they put out. Uh, and the fact that it came before JobKeeper, you know, is in hindsight a mistake. Yeah. Uh, we think that the policy yeah. itself, though, was, was reasonably justified in the context that what we basically asked everyone to do was to stay at home, to suspend their lives, to protect the community. Uh, we put in place, albeit slightly later than we should have, policies to help protect the community uh, by things like JobKeeper to make sure they were financially secure. The issue is always going to be that for across the community, the amount of support offered by government was never going to be enough for some people. If they had a business that was going to fall over, if they had some other, other issues, other um, you know, financial arrangements they had to take care of, being able to access their super probably saved a lot of businesses from falling over or people who were otherwise going to find themselves in really dire financial position. You know, if the purpose of super is to compel people to save and to lock it away, preservation is really important. We agree wholeheartedly with that. This is probably one of the very few instances, you know, literally a global pandemic, the worst in 100 years, where we think that allowing people to access that uh, was a helpful thing. There probably could have been more controls over exactly who could access it and when and enforcing those controls. The hit to people's retirement income, I think it's worth keeping in mind that this is where you have to think about the system as a whole. Superannuation is obviously one part of the system. Foregone compound interest is a big thing. Um, but to the extent to which people are also getting the pension and ending up on most people in the future will end up on a part pension, partly because of super, uh, then what they lost in super, in a lot of cases, they got back quite a lot in the pension. So the hit to retirement incomes... I think has often been overblown. The policy was justified in our view. It would have been worse for it not to have existed and people's lives would have been worse off. And that's probably ultimately the test that we look to apply. Could it have been more narrowly done and more tightly policed? Yes, we probably think so in hindsight. When you look at JobKeeper, and I agree, it should have come um, first, absolutely. And it took the government a while to sort of get there um, on JobKeeper. But when it you, you sort of look at the... Um, the implications and the fairness. And, I, you know, I sort of note in particular um, as a someone who represents retail workers, um, just getting the balance right and controls around policy design, this one where Harvey Norman, for example, trots out and keeps hold of $22 million and no one seems to really 
have a problem with that, apart from workers, um, and has made huge profits during a pandemic. So choosing to keep taxpayer-funded money at that time um, and then on one hand you do that, on the other hand you're saying to women, take out and clear your superannuation out account out your account. So I, I just think they've got to get a much better um, balance and control, to your point, Brendan, get a better control over access and, and who, and fairness in the system, because that's unfair. It's simply unfair. Who knows where we're going to end up relating to the global economy and the economic situations that we find ourselves in. You know, there's so much st- stimulus um, floating around. Should that wash through the system in a couple of years' time, we could end up in dramatic circumstances again. From a conceptual point of view, the idea of, you know, using what is a, a very large pool of of capital to push the economy along, uh, but also to benefit, you know, those members and for, for, for members to perhaps draw on those savings earlier than, than perhaps they might have otherwise, is the concept sound um, for future scenarios? So the first thing I'd say is, you know, I would be careful about confusing the role of superannuation as a long-term retirement income policy and as a short-term macroeconomic stimulus measure. Mm. You know, government has access to stimulus via, you know, you know, it can it can tax and spend and borrow. You know, it can do all of that. It doesn't really need superannuation as a countercyclical macro policy tool. But, you know, this goes to the question of what super is about and super is you know, in our view, a trade-off between consumption, retirement and consumption while working. Mm. Now, the one single rate of compulsory superannuation probably doesn't work that effectively with a means-tested age pension. We probably force you, people on very low incomes to save too much. Their replacement rates are well north than 100%. You see that in the data. Uh, those that are, on, you know, earning $150,000 or above and they're not getting any pension, uh, then their replacement rates are below that kind of 70% number. You know, the, the way I think that you know, we may eventually go is set an anchor for what a level of preservation might be, say 9%, 10% superannuation, depending where the SG ends up. And then I would allow people to draw anything above 9% out earlier in life, you know, to be able to use that for a whole bunch of purposes because there are costs to preservation. Tying up that income uh, and allow not allowing people to use that when they're having kids, they're trying to educate themselves, they're building their human capital, they're paying down a mortgage, you know, that's tough. And so the one policy probably doesn't suit everyone. But I think the really important thing to emphasise there is you need a minimum rate level of preservation. A number like 9% looks pretty good to us on the modelling that we've done and what the review's done. And a bit of flexibility above that is okay. Um, Now, that is, for a lot of people, a very controversial thing, the idea that you would touch preservation at all. But there is a trade-off here. Like, we've got to set a level of compulsory superannuation, a rate, um, and we think a, a number of about nine is probably a nice floor. And then above that, if you want to force people, to, employers to pay it, uh, I'm pretty confident it's going to come from wages. But if you allow people to then opt, take that money and then choose to take a little bit of it uh, every couple of years, because people, a lot of low-income people in particular have very little in the way of, of, of extra savings. You know, we did work on this at the start of COVID. You know, the average, you know, the average Australian who's in the bottom 20% of the earnings distribution, you know, they've only got 500 bucks in the bank. So when they face a crisis, they're in deep trouble. Mm. Um, and so where that's something we think that's where super could play more of a role in helping buffer people, provided that base level of preservation is always maintained. Yeah, that's really clear, Brendan. Really interesting your thoughts on that, Julia. Yeah, look, it's interesting, but I, I think it's also the other part of a um, that kind of concept is the issue around financial literacy and, and advice. Like, making those decisions um, and whatever income level you're at, making those decisions if you're going to have a minimum preservation, draw it out early, you know, you've got kids. I, I just think that's 
we need to look at the other social levers that are in place to make sure, you know, that's why I support, you know, full paid parental leave, all those sorts of things. You really shouldn't have to be drawing down. And if you are, I really think you need to understand the impact of that decision, both short, medium and long-term, and understanding, um, and we have, you know, low levels, I think, of understanding and financial literacy. So you need to know about the impact of that decision. And sometimes, you know, if you're, you know, 22 years old, that's a maybe a different consideration versus being 48 years old. You weren't aver- um, as averse as I thought, Julia, to setting that base at 9.5% given the earlier discussion we had on the superannuation guarantee. No, I absolutely think the rate should be higher. So, you know, I think um, our views on um, what the appropriate rate of SG should be uh, definitely needs to get to 12% and I think um, ultimately 15%. So we would clearly differ on um, to Grattan's view on that. But... As a concept, I think you have to really work through um, models like that and what are the other, you know, things that are important and understanding the decisions and the financial decisions you're making, understanding people's engagement in the topic uh, and, you know, the impact of decision making and understanding financial literacy all kind of are important things to consider when those sorts of ideas are out there. Given some of the, uh, for want of a better phrase, laziness in the sector, multiple accounts, uh, the the costs of providing those investments, kind of numerous other factors, do you think the industry's earned the right for the superannuation guarantee to to really go up to twelve and and you're saying fifteen percent? I don't think it's an industry right. It's about workers' rights to have a decent retirement. So I would probably view it differently. Mm. Um, I think when we talk about costs and uh, efficiencies, we all need to focus on that and do as much as we can to make those reasonable um, low fees for members, uh, low cost to members. That is really important um, and the system should do that. Because it seems to me the industry hasn't moved itself to uh, rectify some of the issues that we're describing here. Had policymakers, you know, been satisfied with, you know, the industry's movement on things like performance and costs, then perhaps the SG would have been able to kind of go along the same trajectory as it as when it was designed. Well, I think we hear a lot about industry um, super performance, and we hear very little about retail. Um, super product performance and, you know, they are generally quite different and industry funds perform um, on average better than retail industry funds. But I think they're, um, that, and I think that, you know, ideologically is where some of the issues are in that it's industry super funds that um, are a concern for particularly this government and uh, so that's kind of where I see it. Um, that ideology... It, it relates to this SG. I'm not sure that's yeah. really where you know, the cost issue comes from. And, you know, I'll be interested to see we've got, um, you know, some big mergers that have um, come up in the last, uh, you know, few months that have been announced. So I'll be really interested to see their cost impact and the reduced costs and benefits of economy of scale yeah. there to see how that delivers. You brought up the ideological debate. Brendan, do you have a view on this? Does the government uh, have an ideological view of superannuation and segments of the superannuation industry? Look, I would say the super sector is very tribal, and I think that's to its detriment. Um, you know, the fact that you have this tribal war playing out between industry and, and retail super funds with their respective sides is one of the main reasons why policy uh, is in the state it's in, because uh, governments of either side of, have, over a long period of time, pushed to protect their side in the war, and not, not enough time has been spent focusing on getting the costs down overall. Now, I agree with Julie that the industry funds, we've had an experiment. 
And it's pretty clear that the industry funds tend to produce better outcomes on average. Um, but Matt, I also wanted to come back to something you said earlier, which is, you know, does the industry have a right to expect that the SG is going to go up? And if they fix fees, should they should it go up? And I think the answer is clearly no. You know, the argument is not about, you know, uh, the level of fees and performance. The uh, level, the argument is about what is the optimal level of compulsory superannuation, and that is a question that should be made in the interest of the Australian people as a whole. Now, Julie and I suspect would agree that that's how we should ask the question. We have different answers. So, in Grattan's view, you know, you look at the rate of of retirement incomes today. Retirees are the most financially satisfied cohort in the community. They have lower rates of financial stress. Uh, and lower rates of poverty than the community as a whole. If you look at the modelling that Grattan's done, that the Retirement Income Review's done, it looks like people are going to have, you know, they're going to replace 70% plus of their pre-retirement earnings, which is the benchmark that tends to be used, which would suggest to us that, you know, in an optimistic sense, the system's working as it is. If you raise compulsory super, you know, this argument that super is going to actually improve the fiscal position is a bit of a furphy. You know, if you're going to, if you raise compulsory super from 9.5 to 12, as it's currently legislated to do, that costs, costs the budget more than it saves out until at least 2060. And then you've got the accumulated debt to pay back. It worsens inequality given the other current policy settings that are in place because you're making people, particularly low-income earners, give up their wages. Now, we agree on that with Julia, but give up their wages yep. in exchange. They also lose their age pension because they are less entitled to the age pension and instead they're relying more on their own retirement savings. It has the effect of reducing the role of the age pension in redistributing income in the community. So you're weakening the actual baseline income support settings that redistribute income. And so we think, you know, you're hurting people's wages during their working life, particularly now we're coming out of recession, we think that's a bad idea. You're costing the budget in the long term and the pension looks like it's pretty sustainable, uh, even if super doesn't go up. And it's less sustainable if the pension, if super goes up because the cost of the budget more than it saves and you're worsening inequality. That just doesn't seem like a good deal to us, which is why we don't. Yeah, but I, I, Brendan, I really applaud your optimism on uh, the age pension and um, how or what that might look like because that is also changeable. It, it's, it potentially gets, um, you know, eroded, changed over time. So I think, you know, I think we need to consider all the pillars and I, I think just sort of saying that the age pension will kind of cure all, I, I just don't think is realistic. Um, it hasn't kept up to date. People on the pension live in poverty. It's, you know, it's not um, the panacea. It is an important social safety net setting and it needs to be maintained and, um, and, and actually kept up to date with living standards and all the other things and the other social uh, kind of supports, as we talked about earlier, rent assistance, but sort of just this optimism of the future of what the age pension will look like, you know, I'm not sure governments will necessarily share those views in over time, you know, those things change. So the pension is currently, you know, falling as a share of GDP pension spending over the next 40 years, even if compulsory super doesn't increase. Pensioners have lower rates of financial stress uh, and lower rates of poverty in the working age Australians. So it looks to us like the system's working. The biggest risk, in my view, is that if you keep increasing compulsory super, you are turning what is currently still a pretty universal age pension into a pension that is only for a small minority. And the more and more that you do that, then the more the pension will come under threat. Because once you've raised super to 12 or 15%, then you probably, then in our view, retirement, saving, retirement incomes look like they're, they're higher than they should be, that people have more in retirement when they're working. And the risk for me would be if a coalition government came along, for example, that did say for or well, I think it'd be un less likely for a Labor government that's more committed to the social safety net. But if, if a government came along and said, well, we're, we can now cut the pension, look, most people are satisfied on super, uh, I think that's actually the bigger risk because the pension looks very sustainable to us. 
Uh, and the more that the less we seek to rely on it in future, I think the more it's it's at political risk. Yeah, look, it's been a fascinating conversation, and we're we're reaching that point. But um, look, I thought it'd be really interesting to get you, both your views on some of the conclusions from the retirement retirement income review. And you know, Brendan, I know you've uh, spoken a lot already about retirement and that as one of the missing elements. So interested in your further thoughts there. But what what from the retirement income review can we determine the direction or the next steps from policymakers um, relating to superannuation? Interested in your thoughts, uh, maybe Julia to start with. Uh, yeah, there's a few. Um, I you know I've touched on I think the need for structural reform in terms of gendered. Um, gender impacts and retirement outcomes for women. And I think that report didn't really um, nail that one as it should. I think the other one that will come out is tax concessions. Um, And I think Brendan actually mentioned that at the start. But I I think that is a real burning issue. Um, And they're too generous, um, you know, at this stage for particularly high income earners. So I I do think that is one to watch. Um, But, you know... Uh, I think home ownership again. We've touched on that, and I, I do think that's a really important um, determinant of living standards. And you know, I'll be interested to see, uh, you know, what the thoughts are around really reinstilling that as a pillar of the retirement system. Hmm. And Brendan, if I was to look forward, I think there the three main areas where you're going to see uh, reform from here. One, look, I don't think the SG debate's over. Um, I think. Uh, uh, if we have an election next year and if the coalition's returned, um, I would expect to see that stay on the agenda. Um, yep. or, and, you know, because the kind of models that certainly we're talking about, like those, this, this sort of cash-out option, is it, it can be done at any time irrespective of um, the rate of compulsory super contributions. The second one is, look, I think as soon as we, we've clearly got um, some big budgetary challenges coming out of COVID, um, and we've got an IGR intergenerational report on the long-term future sort of fiscal position of the government coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, I would have thought superannuation tax concessions should be the first thing up against the wall in, in response to that. Uh, you know, they, they're just not serving their underlying purpose, which is, you know, if you think about they're very unevenly distributed, as, as Julie has pointed to. Um, they don't actually encourage a lot of additional saving. In fact, most of it is just switching from other tax-preferred savings vehicles. And so you could you could do... In terms of things that would help fix the long-term budget position, without um, hurting the economy or or really breaching other big um, policy objectives, they are the first thing I'd look at. The third thing is, look, I don't think the debate over what's going to happen to uh, fix this superannuation fund performance is over by any stretch. Mm. Uh, the question is, what happens next? Um, you know, the mm. the best insurer proposal is still floating around. There is clearly a need to fix underperformance. And, and to raise the bar overall because we think the industry funds do pretty well in an Australian context, but they still seem expensive to us globally. Mm. You don't think that the current port, the bright line test and APRA's uh, kind of regulation of that performance test is enough to, you know, stamp out underperformance across the sector? No, basically because it takes away the tail and that's, you know, a step in the right direction, but it doesn't lift, lift the performance of the average fund that's a fair way from, from failing to trigger that test. You know, if you think about what you are still asking people to do is we're still defaulting people, we're still asking people to choose a superannuation fund and to t- pay attention to what fund they're in. And, you know, I've, I've looked at a number of funds and it's hard, it's really hard to know what's a good fund and what's not. A good proxy often tends to be pick one of the big industry ones and you'll do all right. Um, but, you know, there's still big gains to be made if you move to a best-in-show world where a, a panel of experts who are independent pick 10 funds 
uh, through a competitive tender and then run that process regularly, that would raise performance further because there's clearly still a long way to go. Yeah. And Julia, more scrutiny on the superannuation industry to come, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we talk performance tests, we just need to make sure that there's transparency, there's clarity, there's benchmarks that, you know, people can make assessments on. And I think um, expecting people in the street to go and look on a website and compare asset classes, I just think um, that's really challenging. I don't agree with the 10 best in show because I'm just not sure, you know, some of this this is a real, well, we haven't got time, but to get into the discussion on best in show. But I I just think we've got to um, have a performance test that is translatable, is understood by consumers. Um, It gives them um, a sense of understanding, you know, and I think the performance test in the Your Future, Your Super, you know, a third of products aren't even covered by it. So we just need to have that consumer kind of um, clarity and transparency, which will help make decisions, I think. Great. But yes, the industry funds, I'm sure there's more to come. Thanks um, very much, Julia and Brenda. It's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt.